right, so Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Oh, there we go. Yeah, hello. Yeah. Merry Christmas. Yes, thanks, Nicole. Yeah. All right, so uh, Christmas, we got a bunch of newlyweds figuring out their new traditions. And uh, for many parents, it's a crazy time of year, presence and planning, but with COVID, a little nuance there, right? The twist. This will be, uh, I think it's the first Thanksgiving in my life that I didn't have Thanksgiving at my mom's with Corning Shens, and uh, she's non-traditional. It'd be the first Christmas not at my mom's again, you know, my 89-year-old mom likes to host the whole clan. Uh, now, for others, it could be a little more lonely or somber. There's been some that have lost loved ones. Uh, building new traditions. But Luke brings us all back to the fundamentals. Jesus, the Son of God, really was born to Mary. So read with me in Luke chapter 2, first six, six, seven verses here. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So those first three verses tell us this gospel is rooted in history, right? It, it really happened. Verse 4, so Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. So the next two verses remind us the gospel is rooted in two particular Jewish lives, Joseph and Mary. And then verses 6 and 7. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She swaddled him and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So then Jesus in a manger reminds us that Value is not determined by your location in the physical, economic, or social order. Now, for the original hearers, this would have an additional irony that we don't pick up on. A Savior is born. Good news. What well, was an ironic statement for them? Because Caesar Augustus, when he was born, it was announced as good news and his arrival that he was a Savior. So Luke's Gentile readers are going to remember this and be like, oh, wait a minute, right? But how different the circumstances of these two saviors, right? Quotes for Caesar Augustus. How are they going to recognize the difference? Who is the true savior of the world? How are they going to recognize Jesus who came as the savior? And so Luke then presents several people in this chapter who recognize Jesus as the savior. The first people who recognize Jesus are shepherds. So let's read verse 8. Great story. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby swaddled and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory in the highest, and on earth peace 
to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off, found Mary and Joseph, the baby who was lying in a manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Let's pray. Lord, we ask your blessing on this fellowship here, physically in this building, and those watching and listening. As we look at this such a familiar story, may your Holy Spirit come and open our eyes. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, verse 9 makes a lot of sense, right? An angel shows up, and they were terrified. Just a brief meditation here, thought. They are terrified at the invasion of the supernatural, and this makes sense. God's presence with guilt paralyzes. God's presence with grace transforms. Just a quick side note, it really dovetails with the prophetic words that were shared earlier. 2 Corinthians 3.18, there's a whole teaching here about the new covenant and it's more glorious than the old covenant. It brings righteousness, it remains. But especially this last thought, it unveils the glory of God. Verse 18 says, but we all with unveiled faces the glory of the Lord gazing upon, we would say maybe by gazing upon the Lord's glory, would probably be a good translation there, are transformed into the same likeness from glory to glory as from the Spirit of the Lord. Right? So the shepherds see the, the angels, the, the heavenly, heaven breaks into earth and they're afraid. But Paul says that if you, if you understand, if you're in right relationship to the grace of God, the heavenly presence is what transforms from glory to glory, right? And so the shepherds experience this. God's presence with grace transforms. Good news for all the people. The gospel's for all. Peace to men, the NIV says, on whom his favor rests. That's probably a good translation. The idea is it's uh, the, the well-favored, right, under his grace. Grace is offered to all, but uh, you have to have grace. And they, they model this great response. Like, let's check it out, right? They're going to go check it out. Let's go see. And you notice that there's not even an ending of a sentence, Right? They, they go see it, and they go tell people. Right? Like, I mean, you know, this is, picture probably guys Eric's age, six, 15, 16, 17, right? You know, they're out, you know, or maybe younger. They're out, uh, one of our friends, Daush, uh, we used to have an outreach in his coffee shop, and he was a shepherd boy at seven years old, alone on the mountain all night. You know, and that's pretty typical, right? Um, and so, you know, they're, they're young guys, right? And they are like, Oh, let's go see it. Angel, angel, oh, angel, oh, angel. All right, it's okay. Okay, we go, let's go. Baby, whoa, cool. Right, you know, they're not going to sit around kissing the baby, right? They're going to run up. Hey, you guys, right? And they're telling people this is what happened. Well, it's a great response. It's a great response. The joy of the shepherds. This is good news, right? 
It's good news for everyone today who recognize the news that Jesus will save us from sin and evil and death. So the first people who recognize Jesus are shepherds. But there's another group who recognize Jesus. The second group to recognize Jesus are the wise. So look at verse 25. A few verses here, but let's just read it. Verse 25, he's been born, he's about a week old, they take him to the temple. Verse 25, we'll pick up the story. Now there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And listen to this, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Right? Holy Spirit did suddenly show up in the new covenant, right? The Holy Spirit was upon this man. He's waiting for God. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Messiah, in other words. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the sight of all people, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. (laughs) While the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Can you imagine, you know, the women here that have had a baby, can you imagine a week into the child's life? Wow. No wonder she was a ponderer. Verse 25, Simeon is devout. Understand what Luke is doing. We'll see this again in a a moment with Anna. Luke is presenting Simeon as a model of the spirit-anointed remnant that is awaiting Messiah. It's fascinating to me, it's not hard to figure this out, that right, Luke's the one of the four gospel writers that's a Gentile. And it's fascinating to me that of all the Gentiles, he's the one that draws on the teaching of the Old Testament in terms of Chronicles. We'll get to that later. But anyway, he had received a revelation personally that he would see the Messiah before he died. Verse 27, the Holy Spirit moves him He blesses God for Jesus, a light of revelation for the Gentiles. Look just for a moment at Isaiah 60. You may know that Isaiah 60 is the prophecy of the church, actually. We'll just read the first three verses. It says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. You can read on and on how God will use his people. It's the prophecy of the church. As 
the church brings the light, the nations will come to it. And then Simeon says, verses 34 and 35, this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many to be a sign spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. In other words, it's not all glory. You can see this really through the whole Bible, but especially in the ministry of Jesus. Truth comes and it divides. It winnows. Thoughts, assumptions, and prejudices are revealed in the presence of truth. For a moment, just think ahead to some of the gospel stories that you know. John 3, Nicodemus is confronted with the need for rebirth, and he wants to act dumb, even though he was the teacher, the head rabbi probably of Israel at the time. Now we have a hint that maybe it ended well because chapter 19 has him helping with the burial of Jesus. So, you know, maybe that one turned out all right. But he's confronted with his need. Or think of the rich young ruler who goes away sad. His assumptions about life are revealed in meeting Jesus. Or the Pharisees caught in their own traps. Why does this happen? Because Jesus told the truth and was the truth. And when you confront truth, it exposes the cracks in your soul. Exposure to integrity reveals where you lack integrity. You know, you're hanging out with a group of Christians and there's a certain level of life that feels ordinary to you. And, and uh, you, know, you, you know that some people maybe live a little holier, but that seems like superstars, and you know it's okay, right? And then you meet another group of Christians, and that's ordinary life. Oh, right? We become accustomed to our surroundings. That's why, by the way, that's why I choose good friends <laughs> who regard uh, a very godly life as normal that will help you, right? But uh, Jesus then, I mean, imagine hanging out with Jesus, in whom there was no deceit, who loved but always spoke the truth. It reveals every crack. Have you felt this? That's why we need, you know, I mentioned earlier, 2 Corinthians 3.18. It's the looking at his glory that transforms, right? Because we need it. But then he says, and a sword will pierce your heart also. Why? Because people don't all like the truth. And for some, there's values that are higher than heaven. In my imagination, I see a prophetic old man, pro prophetic, not pathetic, prophetic old man looking at a godly young woman. And honestly, I imagine a softness and a sadness in his heart. He looks at Mary and says, the sword's going to pierce your side. He probably didn't necessarily foresee the crucifixion, but, but he knows how evil responds to goodness. He knows what's happened to the past prophets of Israel. 
Interesting to be a parent, you know. What if your child does become a missionary? <laughs> you know. Yeah. It can be challenging, not just missions, other things. You know what I'm saying? Integrity. So how about us? We love the zeal of the shepherds, and that's right, but some are going to have Simeon's voice as well. Some here, seeking God, knowing the scriptures, knowing the human heart, a wise but measured Simeon, a zealous prophetic man. May we grow many such. Paul says, eagerly desire that you may prophesy. But when you eagerly desire that, recognize the price. What it costs Simeon to wait for God. See, with the prophetic gift, humility comes at least two ways. In the waiting for the word and in the breaking of the longing for your... When you have a prophetic, a genuine prophetic gift, God gives you a vision for what the church should be. Gives you a vision for what God wants to do. And what breaks the heart is seeing the failure of the church. So if you get prophetic inklings, I just encourage you, you're going to have to become an intercessor to not be embittered. Right? Because you're going to see the gap. You're going to see you know, the gap between the vision and the reality. And prayer is what closes the gap. Right? So there may be simians growing up among us, but the humility comes in the breaking of our heart for the church. You know, I'm going to say one more thing. It wasn't in my notes, but it's been on my mind. Amy, I've been chatting about this. I'm going to say something so basic, but then I want to draw it out a little bit. If you really believe the gospel, and I'm sure everyone here does, right? I'm just, I just, you know, I know you guys, right? If we really believe the gospel, then that is the most important message we have. And we must be so thoughtful to not let any other value distort the gospel. Because that will distort people's ability to receive the gospel. So to be thoughtful about what we communicate on social media, for example, so that, I'll tell you what happened to me one time. I was, uh, I, I take different magazines and I get, I'm an idea person, so you know, I just, I read ideas and I go, oh, that's cool, that's interesting. So I, I threw an idea, an article up that I didn't agree with everything, but I just thought, you know, kind of interesting Christian, but not, you know, Honestly, a little neocon, you know what I mean? Whatever. But I, just, I thought, oh, we'll see. This will be fun, right? And right away, within 24 hours, one of my non-Christian cousins who had no context for this article was, you know, like, oh, you know, and it's like, I, I realized I, as a believer, cannot afford to post anything that will confuse. I've got 27 first cousins. I mean, you know, I got whatever. <laughs> I, I can't afford... I just want them to know Jesus, right? That doesn't mean I don't address anything complex, but I'm always going to speak 
with grace and truth. I want to be a Simeon in my old age, right? I'm not there that old yet, okay, but yeah. I want to be a Simeon, right? Filled with grace and truth and wisdom so that, so that nothing distorts the gospel message that my friends and family need. So I don't want to make anything, and even anywhere near as important as the gospel and, of course, my family and loved ones, right? So, you know, cute pictures of kids always go over well. Beautiful drawings by Ava and others, those always go over well on Facebook. You know, so, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about if you're on my Facebook friend. But, you know, the, the point being that we can't afford, life is too short. We cannot afford to waste time on things that will divert people from the desperate need for Jesus Christ. So the second group to recognize Jesus are the wise. Luke mentions one last type to recognize Jesus, the hungry. Luke chapter 2, uh, 36 to 38, just a couple last verses here, but really neat verses. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. So maybe, you know, maybe he died in her, maybe her mid-20s. And then she was a widow until she was 84. Wow. 60 years in the temple, right? She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So it's interesting. Both Simeon and Anna are used by Luke to represent the righteous remnant the book of Chronicles, in my opinion, teaches the most developed theology in the Old Testament, and this is what it teaches in a nutshell, that the true people of God observe the covenant, long for Messiah, and live a life of prayer and worship centered in the temple. I'll say that again just as kind of a mouthful, but, but in my opinion, Chronicles looks at all of salvation history and everything that happened with David, and now they're back. I mean, in Chronicles, they're not back in the temple, but the guy who wrote Chronicles is, you know what I'm saying? It's the restoration of Israel, and he's putting all the Old Testament together, and he's saying, you know, what is it really? Are we going to have another kingdom with an actual king? What's it really going to look like? And what the author of Chronicles, I believe, thinks it looks like is this. The people of God will be, will be watched, you know, observing the covenant, right? They're covenant people, longing for Messiah and living a life of prayer and worship centered in the temple. So there's Simeon and Anna. Luke picks up on this. There they are, longing for Messiah. Anna is especially remarkable. Worshiping day and night praying and fasting and longing for Messiah. Like Simeon, she recognizes Jesus. She's given no, even though she's a prophetess, she's given no poem or song in, in Luke's gospel, but she knows this is God's Redeemer. She's a reminder to us in this season, refresh your hunger. Refresh your hunger for Jesus. You know, why do we give to missions? Because we're hungry for the world to know Jesus. Why do we pray and fast for three weeks in January? Because we're hungry for Jesus and the world to know him. We were talking about, um, I, 2 Corinthians 3.18 has been on my brain, right? I just can't get it off. It's prepping for next semester and just the verse grabbed me. Uh, 
so I was sharing at Advent last night. We, we take turns sharing a little scripture and we do, do some songs and, you know, we have a geeky little Velcro thing and, you know, whatever, the whole thing, right? Light candles and all that. And, um, you know, I was saying to our family, you know, I love Kathy. She's my wife. She's wonderful. But she can't fill me, right? She can't change me, right? Jesus and gazing at his glory. That's what changes me from glory to glory. Anna knew that. She understood. Her heart was longing for Messiah. Refresh your hunger. If the world's crept in, don't beat yourself up. Just say, Lord, I'm hungry. Hunger for a second coming, but you know, the hungry recognize God's work even before the second coming. When we're hungry for him, we're able to discern what God's really doing. So the third group to recognize Jesus are the hungry. So this Christmas, let's recognize Jesus, blow away, blow away the fog. Like shepherds, we want to receive with joy and spread the news. And like Simeon, we want to know the scripture and God's prophetic goals for the world. And like Anna, be hungry for him. So I'm going to close in a little different way tonight, today. Um, with her permission, I'm going to share a creative writing that uh, Ava wrote. And it's, uh, well, you'll see what it is. So I'll try to indicate different people in the writing uh, by where I stand. Maybe that'll help, okay? Just creative writing, kind of a reflection on the nativity and the whole of salvation history. Remember the forest primeval. We walked upon the old waters here in the golden glow of sunlight and the forever green of the ginkgo tree. Our bodies were young and fresh and we knew not the jaws of the lion nor the sting of the serpent's bite. Ah, we were young, but our hearts were proud. Aye, shall the word still be found in the frostlands? Wind and, and spirit and breath and life? It is bitter cold, but these words that my father speaks are warm. I listen to them, watching flame flickering shadows call up the tent, the ice frozen desert outside forgotten. Ruach Adonai, love giver, life giver, remember us. And it is warm, it is warm. Before the sun and the sky and the forever green, before all came to life, when the universe was not and the void howled with nothingless, he was. The word said, let there be light. An unknown prophet, circa 400 BC. I saw a desert flower spring up from the frozen tundra, a tender floweret among the brambles. It was a common flower with no allure or splendor, Yet the snow around it melted and the grass grew as if it were spring again. As I watched, I saw the flower trampled beneath the feet of many. It was trampled like a dead brush. And I saw the snow run red, a stream of heart's blood cut through the frostlands. And from the trail of blood 
Flowers like stars sprang from the soil, now warm and wet and lush. Fire lit the horizon, flames growing, growing, licking the frost with purifying flame. And the voices cried, holy, holy, holy is the word become flesh. And I awoke. For long years, we have studied the black night sky. We've learned the names of the stars. And we listen for their soft, still voices. Are you maker? We've asked. Are you king? Nay, little ones, they murmur. We are but made, even a lesser creature than man. We are but singers of sweet songs. Who then is maker? We ask. Who is king? He who is maker lives in all and through all. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and his people are like grasshoppers. El Elyon, Most High, El Elyon, Everlasting King. This is the word to which we sing, El Elyon, El Elyon, El Elyon. Kings and princes have called us holy men, wise ones, but the stars have taught us that we are but watchers, and so we watch and we wait. Who has believed our message and to whom? Has the arm of Adonai been revealed? Ah, it's a bitter cold night, but we must still watch the sheep. Enoch has brought a casket of wine, and its sweet sharpness warms our young bones. We talk and laugh and speak of the village girls. When we tire of this, we stand and watch the stars, the sheep pushing at our legs and nosing our hands. The stars are more brilliant tonight with a gold tinge about them, and it puts a silent awe in us. Something's going to happen, Aaron says. I I can feel it. Then the stars are alive. They're moving. We can all see it, and we're terrified. Light is pouring from the sky, golden, brilliant light, and the stars are singing. They're singing, El Elyon, El Elyon, El Elyon. Do not be afraid. She watches the child lying in the straw, and her tears are warm. It is a bitterest cold night, but here all is warm. Baruch Hashem HaMashiach Yeshua. Blessed be the name of Jesus, she whispers. Children, children, heed my words. The word may yet be found in the frostlands. Stand with me, let's pray. So Lord, as we remember your nativity, coming as a simple baby, and yet the Lord of all, stir our hearts, seek your face, to know you well. Lord, we pray, may the grace of God the love of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be on each one here today. Bless this season that we walk with you and that we could make you known to a broken world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.